Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. My name is Dario Linares and down the line, of course, is Neil Fox. Neil, how are you, my friend? I'm good, mate, thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, on my eternal quest to find a decent room in the university to record audio in. Um, And uh, the latest one's a bit echoey and has a big drip just outside the window. So uh, the hunt continues. How are you doing? Yes. I've been better, I must say. I spent the entire weekend with a, a migraine and toothache. And last night, I, I've got the beginnings of a cold coming on. And uh, I got this trip to Aesthetica this week and guest lectures tomorrow. So just exactly what you want. I think I think what happened was on, on Friday, Saturday, I realised that I could have a couple of days off, like properly off, and my body just went, screw you. There you go. I'm going to relax now and all the germs will come out, which is a... Uh, I think a theory that many academics hold about the way that the body operates during uh, term time. I think it's a general general life theory, isn't it? You know, like particularly people who do prolonged periods of work that kind of fluctuates, you know, that sense of, yeah, the body knows it's got to hold on until a certain point and then takes any window to recover, I think is, uh, I imagine that's quite common across a lot of disciplines, but certainly certainly the end of a term is is one of the bo- all the toxins leaving the body before any kind of relaxation could start. Yeah, and I, I was kind of hoping I might sound like Sam Elliott for this episode, but I'd sound more like Elmer Fudd, I think. So uh, let's try and uh, work our way through that. But um, we've got a, uh, an episode that was much va- vaunted um, in a, <laughs> over our last few episodes. We've been telling people about it, and it's finally here. So today we're gonna we're gonna talk about speed. We are, yeah. It's it has been long in the in the ether. We've been teasing it and tantalising it, hopefully for our listeners but uh, we recorded this episode in terms of the the live audience audio back in September for Freshers uh, week at Falmouth University for this for the film course and uh, yeah it was it was great fun a great kind of start to the academic year and uh, hopefully people will enjoy what myself and my colleague Dr Verena von Eichen and our audience talked about. Yeah I'm sure they will it's a really really interesting discussion and I think also it, it sort of ties into some of the stuff that we've kind of been talking a little bit about uh, and is just you know being talked about everywhere in terms of you know where action movies sit in today's kind of filmmaking climate I'm, I'm trying to finish off the newsletter for our patreon subscribers so if you want to read that then go to our patreon page but I'm just doing a little a little overview of the the whole discussion about about um, cinema as theme park rides and whether it is cinema or not I've sort of waded into that in a very you know, kind of a superficial way because obviously I don't don't want to go off on one too much in the newsletter. But I think it's an interesting analogy and just posing the question of whether it actually works or not. But I think Speed is very interesting because it is an action film that is sort of pure action. And again, we'll get into this later on, but I, I think it still does work because it does that pure action so well. And therefore you don't really have to worry about maybe deeper context that you might do if if you are watching a different kind of movie and whether today's films actually manage to get that pure action anymore I don't know is a question maybe we can talk about yeah I think that'd be interesting to talk about um certainly whether it's achievable at that level I think is another thing um yeah but uh you've been uh you've been watching a few bits and pieces recently what's been on your What's been on your radar? Yeah, well, I saw, I saw your tweet about Dolomite, and it was like I saw it on on the Netflix, you know, advertising and the the front page. I thought, oh, okay, you know, Eddie Murphy film comedy. You think, you'd like to think, oh, that's good, but you get burned so many times. I think, you know, by people who back in the day, you know, t- talking about eighties action movies. You know, Eddie Murphy 
made films that you would consider action movies, but obviously he's, he's most recognised as a as a comedic star. And, and you just think how good he was in the sort of mid to late 80s and kind of what he became, what it turned him into in a sense. So when you come up, when a film sort of arrives like that, and I didn't really read much about it and I saw your tweet about it. I was like, oh, Jesus, that's, that's high praise indeed. That'll be interesting to watch. And I put it on and yeah, B came in from the next room and she says, what are you laughing at? And I says, it's this film with Eddie Murphy and it's absolutely brilliant it's so funny and she's got she, she was like you're just giggling to yourself all the way through and it's it's one of those movies that, that I, it just completely and utterly took me by surprise in terms of the writing in terms of how it was knowing but in a smart way not just kind of like oh I'm so hip and postmodern. and it was about you know it's about sort of being a struggling artist and and there's obviously sort of parallels I think with Eddie Murphy's career in certain ways and it's just you know it's imminently quotable, but then you realise you're a 45-year-old white man and you, you think you better not go there. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, absolutely one of the funniest things I've seen. And, and we had that episode on the on comedy films and I, t- I told you that, you know, it, 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 I'm not so much a fan now of out-and-out comedies anymore. I like comedy performances within sort of drama situations or other, other kinds of situations rather than the sort of on-the-nose comedy. And this just does both, I think. It it has an amazing sort of reverence for um, earlier films that are about the process of filmmaking and trying to get films made, you know, on, on zero budget, you know, and this stuff. As you mentioned, the sort of relationships to Ed Wood, and I saw a lot of Bowfinger in it. And, you know, again, ju- just looking at the at the, the writers and their, their background, again, it's not, not exactly my cup of tea, but I just think that this hits the mark. And, and Eddie Murphy is the best thing I've seen him, him do since... God knows when. Yeah, I think since Bowfinger. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah, I've been following the the film for a while because I follow uh, Larry Karaszewski, one of the writers um, on, on social media. So I knew that yep. they were making this film and it was really exciting because of him and um, Scott Alexander, who he writes with. Because like you say, they wrote Edward, they wrote The People versus yep. Larry Flint, The People versus O.J. Simpson, all things I really, really love. And do that thing that you're yep. talking about there, which is managed to be really, really funny, but also moving poignant you know dramatic kind of interesting really really you feel the 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 research in a in a kind of really good way so they're kind of some of my favorite screenwriters so i was, I was excited for this and and obviously kind of interested to see eddie murphy come back yeah. and i'm wesley snipes and wesley snipes yeah who's brilliant who's great in it yeah, yeah. really great um but even though I was kind of interested and excited to see it, it still kind of floored me just how good it was because I just thought that this is, yeah. this is yeah just just amazingly funny and yeah kind of inspirational just the the perseverance and I think you know, it's interesting you're sort of saying like you might not be able to quote it as a man of your mid, white man in your mid forties <laughs> but I thought there was a lot of resonance for you know older yeah, yeah. older people who are kind of told a lot that you know what they do isn't real or, you know, waste of time or whatever. And kind of the yeah. perseverance of thinking, no, there's, there's a space for me in this world and I'm going to find it. And just the, the kind of the, on the ingenuity of it. And then as he kind of starts yeah. this endeavor to make, make his own films, uh, very much Edward style, he just such imagination and such defiance. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's definitely one of the best things I've seen this year. And it's clever. It, it's clever on race as well. I mean, when they get the, uh, the, the white kid's in from film school and he, he comes in and introduces himself as Nick von Sternberg. I nearly fell off my chair when he said that. It was so funny. But but that kind of idea that the guy knew, you know, he, he wasn't naive 
to have this kind of idealized vision. He knew that that that's what the game was. And in order to get his film made, it was kind of like we need these guys in there. And it and it wasn't kind of like a a perfect scenario by any means. But it's sort of making a comment about the inequalities of the of the system. But yeah. I'm going to make this compromise to get my get my film made. You know? Yeah, and also interesting in terms of race, in terms of like within the black community, you know, when he goes to see the distributor of um, the Shaft movies um, and when yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes to see the playwright, who wants to be like this really kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of um, important yeah. playwright. Um, Experimental 1970s theatre and all that. You know yeah, I mean? <laughs> but he kind of gets drawn into this world just by the energy and enthusiasm of it. But there's lots of, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't one note at all. It was... It was really, yeah, really sort of layered and, and massive fun. So, yeah, well yeah. well recommended. Yeah, definitely well recommended. And the other thing I saw, which I just, we were looking, it was funny because um, we were looking for a Saturday night film and we actually planned to watch The Irishman. But we thought, I thought it was on Netflix already, but it wasn't. So that went out the window. And we said, oh, let's watch King of Comedy. And B hadn't seen it before. And, and we watched that. And it just drew me in again, right from the beginning. And I'd forgotten how, one of the things I'd forgotten was how smart the editing is. Whereas, you know, obviously, you know, we had the, the bonus episode where we talked about Joker and that that sense of not really knowing, not not knowing what he's imagining or what he's creating in his own head. And in Joker, it kind of tells you at the end. But but in 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 um, in the King of Comedy, it's done in such a smart way where it's relying on the audience to kind of work to understand that there are crossovers here. Some I imagine, some are not. And even then. At times, it's not letting you settle on one or the other. At certain moments, it's great. It's, you know, even Sandra Bernard is just hilarious. And that that moment where it cuts, great editing where it cuts between two scenes of her doing that really crazy um, seduction of of Jerry Langford, and then cutting to to Robert De Niro, who's obviously kidnapped him, is now trying to get on TV, and the, this TV moment. So these two moments abs- of absolute craziness in different ways. And and the effect of stardom is just absolutely brilliantly done. Brilliantly done. I mean, it. I know that the the. I think you're you're on this page where you know people talk about Mean Streets and and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and all that. King of Comedy is up there in that sort of list of what Scorsese's best. You know. Yeah. No. I think I I would definitely put that in my top top tier Scorsese. Um, a film that sort of, yeah long been a champion of simply because I think it's so. It kind of feels like t- Taxi Driver in terms of its complexity and its portrayals of kind of obsession um, and how obsession builds. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, as we sort of talked about on the comedy episode, that, that just having that comedy aspect to it, which is a kind of deranged comedy from Cup- Pupkin and obviously, you know, and having just having Jerry Lewis in there and his kind of shtick as, as the host is kind of makes people feel like it's not doing the same thing as Taxi Driver, which is so overtly serious I think but it's I'm glad to see that yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of grown in stature and people have found it and it's also been one of the one of the benefits of Joker has been the increased kind of focus on that as a film in the conversation which is which is very welcome yeah absolutely something to to kind of go back to I think in in terms of that oeuvre just remembering what how similar filmmaker Scorsese was I mean it, 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 to be honest with you I'd rather just go back watch the films rather than deal with some of the other stuff that gets talked about because that's all clickbait even though I'm written a little bit about it now for the newsletter but do you know what I mean it's kind of like yeah whatever have your conversations king of comedy is still a masterpiece yeah I mean the idea of can- cancelling Scorsese is just idiotic because um, <laughs> then you wouldn't have Joker in the first place so what are you going to do about that yeah talking about Uvers and kind of going back to it just I wanted to flag up a film which is playing at the Dock and Roll Film Festival 
which is running up at, running at the moment uh, in London. Uh, so it runs till the middle of November. Cool. And uh, it's David Crosby, Remember My Name. So David Crosby was kind of singer and musician from The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And uh, it's a Cam, Cam Crow produced this film and he, he does the interview that kind mm. of sits at the centre of it. And it's one of those things, I've never really been a massive Crosby fan, but the film is really beautiful and really took me by surprise. It's painfully honest you know this is someone who had a reputation for being difficult and was an addict and was in prison and fell out with a lot of people um and the film makes no attempt to kind of create a hagiography about that he is very honest about his his part in all of his troubles and and how people like neil young and roger mcguin from the birds just won't talk to him at all um it's really sad you know really moving and the last third is him kind of reckoning with a life of bad decisions which is at odds with this incredible body of work mm. as a musician you know it's a kind of level of reflection you rarely see and really made me kind of think twice about him as a as a person by the end of it which was which was great and the archive footage is is fantastic as you'd expect from that you know from that that 70s laurel oh. canyon period um and what's also lovely is how much time he gives sort of talking about how great other people are you know so there's a whole section on Jodie mitchell where he basically, you know, just eulogises her about her for, you know, sort of ten minutes, and it's you know remarkable time given over in a documentary to to someone else. So um, I've written a piece about it um, and a couple of other films that are showing up on the Quietus. But if if you're in London and you like music docs over the next couple of weeks, check out Doc and Roll definitely. Do you know where where it's playing? Uh, all, all sort of all different venues, yeah. Picture House Central and and, cool. and places like that. So yeah, check the website as they like to say. No worries at all. Awesome. So. I suppose let's let's move into uh, the main body of the of the podcast. So obviously you you gave us a a precedent of of the reasons for screening it. I think it's a great choice, particularly because it it does. I mean, you talk about this on the on the on the tape on the live tape about it being somehow ground zero for a shift in action movies. And is that something you'd kind of thought about before, or was that? Was that a sort of thing that, that that kind of came to you when you were talking with Verena or in the build up to the to the film? A little bit in the build up. I think what what was what was obvious to me, having seen it when it was released, um, and kind of being a fan of action movies, was it felt very different. It felt significant in a way that at the time I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate. And I'm not sure that the thesis necessarily holds kind of a hundred percent, but it, it definitely feels like the start of something different for action movies. And I think particularly in regard to Keanu, I think it's a lot of it's in the casting because I think that you could have made that film with Bruce Willis um, and it still might have done as well, you know, because the premise is so strong and the but the feeling of, of watching it, I think, would be very different, I think. And it, it's, it signifies a shift into a different relationship between audiences and action action stars. And it's the period where that kind of leads us to where we are now, which is which is a kind of 30 years of, of, of different types of, of, of action heroes, which kind of sit very much kind of in opposition to, but certainly in, in tension with the previous sort of 20 years, you know, from sort of Ford through particularly Schwarzenegger, Stallone and, 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 and Lundgren, and, you know, and that kind of 80s, 80s B-movie, prestige B-movies um, that were, were, were very popular. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think that there is a sort of there are diff- there are kind of like parallel trends for me in action cinema, particularly going back to the eighties when I was growing up. Because I think obviously, you know, that there are films where 
action is central and paramount, paramount, you know, well before the 80s, of course, throughout the history of cinema. But I think that there's that sense of high concept action is, is something that's tied to the 1980s. But I also think that there there is a sort of legacy that goes back through speed that is different from the kind of hard body action um, heroes that you you know that are associated with that book by I think it's Avon Tasker, isn't it? Who, who wrote, is it? Who wrote that book? I think. Oh, Susan, no, Susan Jeffords wrote. Susan, Je- let's get that right. Susan Jeffords wrote Hard Bodies. Von Tasker wrote Spectacular Bodies, I think, if I remember rightly. But I think just just going back through my sort of interest in action films and there, and again, sort of pulling out that parallel. So things like Raiders of the Lost Ark and then Aliens and Lethal Weapon and those kinds of movies, I think also are slightly aside because I think Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson, they do have more in common with Keanu in terms of their their positioning at, 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 as the sort of male hero. Now, maybe slightly different in terms of like some of those films that, that they've got that kind of outsider maverick. It's just that that man against the system kind of thing going on, um, which is different, I think, like you say, in, in terms of speed where he's on the bus and he's kind of like becomes a... A kind of man and man of the people. He's definitely not that indestructible Rambo Schwarzenegger type type character. But I do think that there is a there is a sort of lineage in terms of the the way that the action hero is is defined within cinema that is outside of those huge muscular action stars. And also, I think in terms of the the structure of the film, I think does owe a lot to something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I can't remember where I read this, but it it was kind of like the the film that. Rather than Star Wars and rather than Jaws, it was the film that, and I can't remember who said this, that first had this structure of set piece, run around a lot, set piece, run around a lot, set piece. Do you know what I mean? Stop to explain a bit of plot, set piece. And it's just the structure of the film is designed around these set pieces and everything else in between is designed to get you onto the next set piece. And I think that, that you know, maybe speed in a slightly different way does does do that but it's an interesting conversation of where speed sits in that lineage i think sorry that was going on a bit no no i think it's i think it's important to to say and it's it's great because obviously one of the reasons that kind of picking a film like speed is is trying to get to the the kind of the crux of of where it sits and is it is it of is it of value and what is its value and where does it kind of sit in that sense you know yeah for me it was a very exciting and you know, kind of pleasurable and formative experience at the cinema seeing it. But is is my relationship to it kind of subjective because of the spectacle or is or, or does it have something else of of note? And I think, yeah, it's interesting to hear you sort of mention the the likes of kind of Mel Gibson and, and Harrison Ford and stuff. And I guess that they are they are not the traditional um they're almost more kind of classic Hollywood you know, kind of wisecracking, charming, yeah. slightly uh, mischievous, well, very mischievous, kind of uh, on the edge kind of characters, which Reeves's character in Speed and then later something like Bourne or something like is just the kind of the antithesis of that. It's kind of like there is no personality. You know, you see a little bit in the terms of the relationship with his partner in Speed, but he's not, you know, he's just, this is his job. You know, he is very much like, you know, he's not a Riggs and he's not, you know, so I think it's inter- that seems like a shift as well away from, which I think is what Keanu, again, does with the, the yeah. performances. He brings it into yeah. the, focusing on the plot and the mechanics of the plot much more than the personality. You know, you end up rooting for the situation to be resolved and this relationship with, with Sandra Bullock, this chemistry to be kind of realised than kind of 
cheering the hero in that kind of traditional way, which I think is that felt very much like a shift. And I, I would argue as well is is a kind of a moment where cinema starts to move way more into other things than the star, you know. And I think we might talk a little bit about where action cinema is located. And when you think about superhero movies and blockbusters, which are essentially the action movies of today on that scale, they're not about stars. Mm. They're about situations and characters in situations and the resolution of situations before another situation presents itself, um, which I think is... Uh, mm. And may, maybe that's traceable back to things like, you say, Aliens and Raiders of Lost Ark, which are genre movies, you know, in a way that speed, the genre is action, whereas... You know, which I think is I think is fascinating in itself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a, a good place for us to maybe move into the uh, recording of uh, Speed at the Poly in Falmouth with myself and uh, Verena von Eichen and then uh, our lovely audience. Hello, welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you very much to my colleague, Dr. Verena von Eken, for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me, Neil. So this is the first screening of the new season, and uh, it's the Keanu Reeves starring uh, 1994 Jan de Bont classic Speed. And uh, when I said we were screening Speed, you were quite excited. Um, uh, do you want to sort of share why? Is it a film that you'd seen? Or you know, why did you think, oh, this... I've got to do this. Yes, uh, I've seen Speed several times. Um, it's, uh, yeah, one of my kind of uh, favourite uh, kind of, you know, Saturday evening entertainment type films. So it's, uh, it's I think it's uh, not dated. It's aged very well. Um, it's still as enjoyable, I think, as it was 25 years ago when it first came out. Um, but um, I think there's also more to it that we might not pick up on on first viewing. So, um, or things that we can think about when we watch uh, the film in uh, in context of um, what did, did it mean for the uh, for the action genre, so to speak? Was it maybe a bit of a turning point in terms of um, how uh, the the action hero is portrayed? Um, is it kind of um, projecting forwards two films like uh, the Bond franchise, sorry, the Bourne franchise or um, Mission Impossible and so on and so forth. Um, how, are, uh, how is uh, the uh, a setup with a villain basically blowing things up in a kind of, uh, well, in, a, in an urban centre before 2001, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. how is that portrayed and so on and so forth. So um, I think there's, there's hopefully more to it than... Yeah, uh, just having a good kind of Saturday night entertainment. Which uh, is always necessary. Um, yes. But yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I was interested in screening it as well, particularly this one. Um, because it's, you know, like a lot of comedies, action movies are kind of considered just entertainment. Um, and I thought for a good introduction to, to students kind of about to embark on a film studies course, it, it's, a good, it's a good film to see, well, how do, we, how do we think about this other than just as entertainment? What are the ways into talking about this film that are kind of cultural, contextual, uh, political, based on gender and things like that. So, and it was, yeah, I mean, I remember when this film came out in the cinema, I saw this at the cinema, um, and it's 25 years old, which I didn't realise until I was working on a film festival looking at kind of anniversary screenings, thinking, you know, what kind of events could you sort of tie in? And then I was like, wow, speed was... And then I, I instantly went back to remember when I saw it, which was in the States, and that was a big summer, that was True Lies, you know, which I think people, you know, like True Lies and Speed came out within weeks of each other. And that really is the old and the new, you know, like the, the kind of the planet Hollywood, 
um, which is probably a reference that people still don't, you, you probably don't know that, or you might do, that Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and Sly Stallone had a restaurant called Planet Hollywood, which was a kind of global hard rock cafe kind of franchise, and they were the, they were the, the very awkward kind of faces of that. Um, and that was a really weird time. That was the, they were huge, aggressive, celebrity star, you know, stars. And then, you know, and True Lies is a hugely bombastic film. And then at the same time, you've got Speed, which just felt so different. And um, Keanu, it was a moment for Keanu and it was a moment for action movies. And, and I was someone who really enjoyed Keanu in his pre-Speed days. And it felt like a huge leap that he was going to go and not just not just make an action movie, but be, be the star of an action movie, um, which I think is like how we, we're going to sort of set the film up is in terms of that, that Keanu moment. Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, now, obviously, you might uh, associate uh, Keanu Reeves with John Wick. It was very much kind of uh, a, a very well-known bankable star, but Speed was kind of his breakthrough film, that it was his first lead role previously. Uh, he had been playing supporting roles or kind of a co-lead in um, uh, Point Break in 1991 with, uh, with Patrick Swayze. So um, it's, it's interesting to look at uh, how, is, how his character is portrayed in the film as it's an interesting thing to think about. As you were saying, um, uh, True Lies came out the same year. That was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So where you, whereas you have in the 1980s, you have this really muscly, butch, kind of butch, cold, callous, kind of tough, muscular action star, Sylvester Stallone and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, it's interesting to think about how, uh, how Keanu Reeves' character in Speed is possibly a bit different and uh, how he's, he's yeah, uh, kind of engages with his, his co-stars, the other characters in the film, kind of slightly differently um, and uh, how that then, uh, yeah, changed the, the face of, of the action star um, kind of in, in, the, in the years going forward. So I think that's, that's one thing to look out for, I think, when we're watching the film. Yeah, because I think, like you say, the John Wick's a great, a great, um, a great kind of endpoint, isn't it? In terms yeah. of, uh, well, not endpoint, but in terms of where we are now. But but tracing it back to this moment, and then in the middle of that, you have something like the Matrix. And it wasn't a surprise when Keanu Reeves took the Matrix, and largely because if you'd seen him in Speed, you exactly. knew that he was what he was capable of in that kind of role, and also what he would bring to that role, which I think was really. Um, but then if you, if, the, if the Matrix were to come on the back of some of those early roles, which we might talk about later, yeah. that so would have been... Yeah, smaller indie films, dramas, yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you say, where he's playing very strange characters. Exactly. Um, and this kind of, yeah, seeing a, seeing a kind of strange, almost like, well, a character actor, but a very kind of, yeah, an odd presence in this kind of role did pave the way for things like Nicolas Cage... Uh, and his weirdness, um, something like The Rock. I mean, Conair's he's he's more stereotypical, but Rock, The Rock, he's a kind of odd scientist. Um, and then, you know, Matt Damon, in, I like to say, and Tom Cruise's reinvention in the Mission Impossible film. So this really feels like a, a ground zero moment for the contemporary action film. Um, and hopefully uh, people will, will see that. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to leave it there because it's quite a long film. And also it's one of those things where I just want to see it. Like, I haven't seen it in a long time. I've seen it a lot. Um, and there's something about... It's one of those films that when when I know I'm going to watch it, I'm like, let's just let's just get it watched. Um, it's full of so much great stuff. So, yeah, join us afterwards uh, where we hope to have your uh, responses to it. But uh, thank you, Verena, and uh, let's let's get it on. Let's watch Speed. Enjoy. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? 
What do you do? He's so persistent, he always gets his man. Wouldn't be able to interest you in a bribe, would I? I've got uh, plenty to go around. My money. Thank you for yeah. Thank you for staying. Um, oh, so tense. It is very like, tense. I've seen it like how many times, and like just I'm just sat there on the edge. Like the way it's constructed, it's yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. And I, but I forgot I forgot how long it takes to get on the bus. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like every like that's that opening sequence is what thirty minutes. It's true. You yeah. Know, before you're even on the bus. And I think I, I don't think I think that's something you wouldn't necessarily see nowadays. Like you'd have to have story, but that's all. It's all prologue. Essentially, yeah. it's all character building. It's all relationships. Um, yeah, and it takes a long time. It's a really, really drawn out set piece. Um, what were your thoughts on seeing? Uh, yeah. So uh, on the one hand, it's as you're as you're saying, it takes a while to get on the bus. On the other hand, it's it packs those three scenarios of like fast moving, out of control objects into one yep. story, into one script. So you first you got your lift, then you get the bus, and then yep. you got the underground train. And um, if we're if we're talking about about script and storytelling, I I thought it was um, yeah, it was. If you think about it, it's very neatly done in the sense that there's always this other. It's it's always the next thing to happen. Oh, we're out of fuel. Oh, we run over a baby. Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, there's a gap in the road, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, it's it's very simple, but very effectively and very well written. That immediately, as soon as one crisis is resolved, there's another challenge, another problem, another kind of uh, added uh, bit of, of tension yeah. being introduced into the story. So it's it's quite fabulous. Yeah, and what's amazing is how, like, in the middle, the main, the bus sequence, the the relationship between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock builds to the point where the logic of the last 30 minutes just just disappears. Yes. You know, like, it makes none of it makes any sense in terms of, like, what actually happens. But you don't care because you're so invested in these characters. Mm -hmm. you're, you're in them. Yeah. So it's like, well, we need to get we need to get to this thing. We don't worry about the storytelling logic. We're just... But you, you just, you're just in it. They're so good. And it's kind of a reminder of, like, how star power, even in, an, even in a movie that's as kind of plot-driven as that, yes. can really just sort of transcend anything that's a bit like well it doesn't make any sense kind of thing yeah and they're so good together yes yeah they have great chemistry together and it's it's, it's exactly like you say it's um you almost the the the, the payoff of the whole uh, train sequence is to for, for them to have another embrace yeah. like the one they had coming out of the bus so yeah. yes that's exactly what that's about that's the satisfaction that you get as a viewer at the end and yeah because the first one is a bit subversive like oh we, it's we need the bond moment exactly and it's kind of it's thwarted isn't it you think are they deliberately thwarting it or oh no because we've got We've got to do this other thing. Yeah, like say, we've got to move straight on to yep. the next one. When we were talking before, you were you made some really interesting points about like Keanu's role mm -hmm. as an as a hero mm -hmm. in the fact that he's not he doesn't really do much yep. that a traditional hero does. Mm -hmm. um, could you sort of explain a bit of that? Because I think that I thought that was really interesting. And then rewatching it then with that in mind, I was like, oh yeah, 
yeah. a really fascinating role. Yeah, so uh, if you think about uh, his character uh, in relation to uh, the other characters in the film, the Annie character, the other passengers on the bus, his police colleagues, um, there is, I think, a very strong sense that he is part of a community, of a group of people, and he depends on them as much as they depend on him. So they literally have to rescue him when he's under the bus. Uh, Annie has to give a bit of a pep talk when he has this meltdown moment after Harry dies. He is very much although he makes himself one of the hostages, but as soon as one is, is one of the hostages in the in, in that bus situation, he is, in, in a way, well, he's one of them, and he's, he's a victim uh, as much as they are, in a sense. Yeah. So there is there is that, that sense of um, uh, not being this, this maverick, loner, outsider that you would typically get in an 80s action film with Stallone, with Schwarzenegger and so on, um, or even in a film like Die Hard, which uh, is a film that Speed gets compared to a lot because the similar situation in the sense that the hero has to kind of rescue a group of people who are entrapped in a space mm. somewhere. Uh, but whereas John McClane, the Bruce Willis character, is, is very much kind of operating uh, on his own, uh, sort of in the air, vents from, from above, uh, Keanu is in the, right in the middle of it. Mm. And uh, kind of yeah, he's he relies on other people to to help him. He relies on Harry. He relies on his colleagues, uh, kind of in the in the chopper and the car to to work with them. So there is there is a greater sense of him being part of a community, and I think there's also a greater kind of vulnerability, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like that relationship between him and Harry in that first act is equal. You know, yeah. like Keanu's not. You know, they are an ab they are absolutely a kind of a, an equal yeah. team in that. Um, or possibly even subordinate yeah, and then he says yeah. you know you're the expert I just work here so he's he's kind of he's he's, he's the young trainee yeah, isn't yeah. he and relies on Harry a lot and his ideas like to get out of stuff are really like stupid and reckless his big idea yeah. is jump yeah. and then make the train go faster yeah. and both times he's relying on Sandra Bullock's driving mm -hmm. or just blind luck yeah. like, and you just think that is so not traditional like the, he does not step in yes. and with brute force or even yeah. a kind of problem-solving genius mm -hmm. solve the day. He literally just kind of does his best to work it out in the moment, and it just works works yes. out, which yeah. I think is great, and I think yeah. that's why it's so refreshing mm -hmm. as a movie in, in part. Um, yeah. Anything else you wanted to share before we open it up to our, our audience? Um, well, I think it's uh, it's interesting to, in terms of uh, uh, looking at his previous roles. We, we were saying Speed was kind of his, his breakthrough film in terms of his career. And as we were saying earlier, um, the films he'd been in before were, were dramas. A lot of them were independent films. And uh, if we look at his... Uh, his character, his personality, in uh, as you know, in this uh, in speed, um, and if we say it's very much a, a departure from a kind of uh, a dominant, tough, loner type masculinity, then that is that is something that fits with his previous roles because he's been in a lot of kind of uh, interestingly, if, uh, there's a lot of consistency in terms of the characters he played before, all of which had a more, I guess ambiguous or complex masculinity and sexuality you could say so there's for example one of his earlier films is dangerous liaisons um where he's basically the, the kind of hapless foil and lover of a much older woman mm. which by the way if you haven't seen it check it out it's one of my absolute favorite <laughs> films of all time 
uh, John Malkovich and Glenn Close being proper evil. Okay, <laughs> so very, very good. Uh, My Own Private Idaho, he plays a prostitute or street hustler. Much Ado About Nothing is a Shakespeare adaptation, kind of a Shakespeare adaptation where there is a suggestion that his character kind of might be having an affair with his male um, kind of servant. And then uh, finally, the sexuality is also kind of ambiguous in, in Dracula in that his, his Jonathan Harker is, is even raped by um, uh, Dracula's kind of vixens or kind of brides. So, um, so the, he's, he's definitely not the tough, either the tough action hero Hero or the tough kind of alpha male uh, of of the kind of uh, Reaganite eighties action yeah. films. Yeah, and like you know, in, in, even in Point Break, like that is a really complicated relationship. In terms you, of, you get the bromance yeah, between yeah. him and Patrick Swayze yeah. all the way through it's in not that simple. as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. And what I love about Speed is that he brings all of that with him. You mm-hmm. know, he's not he's not doing that thing of like I'm going to step like so. Bruce Willis is an example who did mm-hmm. comedy, and then when he goes into action, he kind of becomes a different actor. Yes. Whereas Keanu just stays Keanu, as we all mm-hmm. know. But he brings all that mm-hmm. stuff with him, so it's really interesting to watch him be yeah, just essentially one of a team. And mm-hmm. but he's also, which is one of the you know the reasons he is a star. He's incredibly magnetic, yes. incredibly beautiful, but also just like Bill, you know, Bill and mm-hmm. Ted, like just like just 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 part of. And he's, there's a strangeness to him, which I think is mm-hmm. really fascinating. So I love, yeah, I love this period where he just kind of, yeah, makes this huge movie, and it is just massive, but it, he still mm-hmm. retains that that weirdness and that yeah. strangeness and that ambiguity. Exactly. Um, yeah. And he's awkward, you know. Exactly. And a lot of people say yeah. that about his acting, or he's not a very good actor. But I always read it as awkwardness, mm-hmm. which yeah. I love, you know. Yeah. I don't like, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a certain gentleness and and kind mm. of uh, vulnerability and kind of that he's give more caring and attentive also in the relationship with the Sandra Bullock character. Like the first thing he does when when she kind of you know starts crying over the woman's death is like she's, he says, "What yeah. can I do? You yeah. know, how can I help you?" So yeah, so it's That's kind that of beautiful moment where, like, just for the shot from the back of the bus. I think mm-hmm. it's after um, maybe after the woman dies or after how he hears about Harry. Um, and he, they're just holding hands. They're holding hands, and yeah. And it's just such a sweet moment. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, yeah, it's just really wonderful. Cool, right. We'll uh, open it out now and see what people have to say before we carry on. Has anybody got any thoughts they wanted to share about... Sorry, speed? we can't see you very well. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to dare. Oh, yeah, yeah there's one there. Uh, no, I just wanted to sort of comment on two things. Firstly, just how well it builds tension um, in quite a, a literal way through the use of the speedometer, for lack of a word. Because um, with the literal ticking down of, of the speed, and you're made very aware of that fact, it is, it is quite brilliant because it's such a simple concept. Um, and a lot of films just create tension just through very complicated means, but then that's quite a beautifully simple and wonderful thing. Um, and also, as you've already said, it takes a while for to get on the bus. Um, throughout it, I was trying to find ways to nitpick it uh, for being made in the 90s, but it's wonderfully timeless. Um, and I think if it were to be remade, or whatever, that would be the one thing that would change, is that they, they'd probably rush into it. And it is just proof that you don't need to do that. Because um, it, it is, as you said, it is set up wonderfully um, to the point where the ending is just weird and uh, wonderful. Uh, but you just, yeah, you don't, you don't care, really. Um, 
Yeah, I think there's a there's there's a real confidence in the the storytelling. It's almost as if they know they know this is going to work. So the opening credits, are, you know, the the lift is it takes its time. You know, the, mm-hmm. the the lift is not it's not like speeding down. It's not kind of telling you, you know, get ready. It's kind of it takes its time just in terms of setting up. Yeah, all of the the aesthetics and all of the the themes and everything that it wants to do in that in that sequence is the credits with the lift and then then that just that amazing long long sequence um so then you you are invested in these characters and you are even in the 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 Dennis Hopper character you kind of you get so much into that so that when they're on the bus it can literally they they take very little space between set pieces you I mean it's like 30 seconds to a minute of let's ca- literally let's catch our breath and then it's exactly. into the next big thing you know and all that work's kind of done up front um so that it can just propel and it really propels through um and then when you it has that really yeah kind of i love the way the score the kind of romantic score sweeps in just as they escape the bus because there's very little like of that kind of classical hollywood music throughout but in that moment it's so euphoric and it feels like the end but then you say it's kind of not the end and then then we then we just want to we just want to know how it wraps up um and do they get together do they get the bad guy and it is the 90s so that stuff is resolved um but it does just build on those really simple blocks. I mean, it, you know, it's a, one of those classic meetings, isn't it? Like, there's a there's a bomb on a bus. Yeah. So it's a, it's a high concept film yeah. in this meaning that it's it's a film the, the the premise of which you can summarize in one sentence. It's as simple as that, and it works. And that's almost like yeah, the film's uh, title is its motto. It is about speed and it is about noise, and it keeps constantly keeps moving. And in that sense, it's kind of uh, uh, well, kind of very sweetly in a way calls back to the first film ever made by the Lumiere brothers in 1896 train pulling into a station which is just a train pulling into a station and because people hadn't seen it before they were like ah the train's coming towards us so there's this there's this very simple joy of both of of, of what film can do which is mm. capturing and creating movement and yeah. what that's what the film does kind of all the way through and it's also what what I thought watching it again uh, was uh, ironically uh, it kind of follows the logic of the bomber which is you know a bomb is meant to explode so we have buses running into planes we have trains shooting out of streets we have planes exploding so, so because the, it's uh, it's the cinema of attractions this the term has been used for early cinema so it's the cinema of spectacle mm. you, we, you it's the joy of watching spectacular things happening on screen so yeah. it, it would have been an anti-climax wouldn't it, it wouldn't it, if, if the Jack Trevon character would have managed to defuse the bomb yeah and to climax so yeah it had to happen didn't it so yeah it had I, think, to explode. I think that's yeah i think that's uh yeah that, that that's exactly how it feels they take the spectacle seriously yes you know they really invest in the possibilities of the form to to be spectacular yeah and like I say to kind of get to that moment and that kind of makes sense why keanu at that time is going to be cast because you don't want someone who's going to act you know yes. you don't want someone who's going to get in a way of and try and bring too much emotion to it and he brings a lot of subtlety to it but he doesn't get in the way of the action he's basically like say rooted in it mm-hmm. and he carries it forward rather than someone you know trying to do too much and too many asides and wanting to pull it into a more interior space it's like no let's just keep you know all is it's all it's all archetypes on the bus yes. you know there's no characters on there they all fulfill a role and a function they have yep. their three lines of you know um they're there to do a job but the film takes them all seriously so mm-hmm. and it's like yeah we need you here because we need to get you need to do this at this point you need to do this point um yeah the construction of it is 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 really impressive i think and and what's impressive yeah is that it's it's 25 years old but it doesn't feel that because it's so 
dedicated to spectacle. It's so dedicated to being this experience um, rooted around this very, very simple idea. It's not complex. The characters are not complex. Yes. That's why it works. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, that's that's uh, uh, very much uh, what it's about. Is uh, yeah, as we're saying, uh, spectacle, movement, noise, um, and not kind of uh, about uh, the characters' inner lives or interiority uh, or psychology. I've got a really nice quote um, from uh, Richard Dyer, who's a film scholar who kind of reviewed the film, and he said um, about Speed that uh, extreme sensation in this film is represented as experience, not within the body. Uh, or the characters, but in the body's contact with the world, its rush, its expansiveness, its physical stress and challenge. So that's what it's about. It's characters or people being in touch with, with uh, well, objects, moving objects, uh, metal wheels, and so on and so forth. So that's what it's about. It's really not. We don't need to know anything about Keanu Reeves's character or Sandra Bullock's character. It's really all about, um, you know, the scenario that they're in and it's moving. Very, very and those characters are not far removed from us as audience members. Exactly. They're not the Schwarzeneggers. Yes. There's no, there's no, there's no distance really. Yeah. There's a little distance, but it's not that far. So mm -hmm. yeah, we can, we can go through that experience with them and, and 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 understand physically what they're going through in a way that you can't with Schwarzenegger. Like yeah. I can't, you know, because the, the physicality of that body is yeah. so so extreme yeah. yeah and yeah. at this point uh, uh stallone and schwarzenegger would have developed a star persona that is so self-conscious that they would have to reference it constantly in their films you know i'll be back and so on and so yeah. forth whereas you know uh, i guess keanu is a, is a clear bit of a clean slate at this point yeah. so, which is why again it works so well yeah because around this time schwarzenegger has made the last action hero which is basically a comment on his own star persona exactly. um, and then yeah this fresh this fresh thing kind of explodes onto the scene great right anyone else Oh, yeah. Do you want to move it along there for us, Luke? Just to whoever's... What I've observed through the film, it was quite interesting seeing how you have the, the four actors who I recognised were mainly Keanu, Dennis, Sandra, and then Jeff Daniels. It was quite interesting to see how these four individuals actually had... Because, like, some were pre there star days and some of them everyone knew them Dennis Hopper you knew and it was quite interesting, interesting to see how back at the time they were very it, 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 they have such a character they, they have such a character about these that, that Sandra's very it has her own characteristics Jack's very vulnerable and very very much having to think, think of the and then you have Dennis Hopper, who's just psychotic, but has a backstory to him that you can tell from him. And Jeff Daniels, who quite funny seeing him in a serious role, which he's always had for so many years. And yeah, I was I was quite fascinated just to see what it must have been at the time, just to see where people were at at the time. Well, I th yeah, I think what's interesting about because I was I made a note of that about the actors as well mm -hmm. is that it's kind of Die Hard does that to a certain extent where it puts it puts people that you know in in unfamiliar roles you know particularly with Alan Rickman um, you know in, in Die Hard but 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 what this does which is kind of different to those eighties movies or B movies or action movies is that it populates the entire cast with actors yeah. so you have Jeff Daniels but then you also have you know um, Alan Ruck Glenn Plummer you have people who've been in movies and are TV, you know, 
movie actors and not kind of B-movie actors. Um, and that's something that Die Hard does with, you know, like Bonnie Bedelia and things like that. So, but this goes right down so that normally those roles will be a lot more... I mean, it's quite scenery-chewing, but there's, yes. there's, there's a lot more actors in it than, than normal. And that's this, it is that shift into taking action movies seriously as a vehicle for stars. Um, so you get those kind of performances. And obviously the one I'm forgetting the most, Joe Morton, who I love Joe Morton. <laughs> and pre this, Joe Morton's mostly in... Well, he's in Terminator 2, but prior to that, he's working with John Sayles and he's on stage. And all of a sudden, he's in these big movies yeah. and he brings something to it. He's able to really perfectly judge the material. So he's serious when he needs to be serious, but he's also, you know, when he, we can't believe that, that Jack's kind of come out from underneath the bus, there's a real kind of like joy. And he's so like, I can't believe this, you know, but, but it's just really good acting. And that that's quite rare pr- prior to this point, but it really becomes the norm. So now, you know, you look at Marvel... And it kind of starts in where you're like serious actors, theatre actors are in these these big, big movies doing kind of things. But this is a movie where everyone knows exactly where to pitch it. Dennis Hopper must have been, you know, like maybe there's maybe like three days work there for him. He does, he's not really in it that much. He probably just made it all up, um, had a great time, you know. Um, but he knows exactly how to play that character. He's not trying to make it King Lear. No. He's not trying to feed, he'll, he'll deliver the lines mm-hmm. and a little bit about backstory, but he's not that fussed. He's really there. He knows his role. Um, and it is interesting to see Jeff Daniels, this is like a year before Dumb and Dumber, when he becomes this kind of comic. But he, again, at that time, he's, an, he's a serious actor. He's in a lot of indie movies uh, sort of prior to this. And again, really taking this role as seriously as, as, as he can, but knowing ultimately he has some pretty cheesy lines and... Yeah, I, I do find it interesting to look back at those actors now. And most of those are in TV now, you know, like, mm. whereas, um, or they're in Marvel movies mm-hmm. still. Yeah. So, cool. Good point. Well done. I just want to say that uh, going into this movie, you know, I, I had no idea what it was. You know, I looked at the poster outside of my phone and I thought, oh, this is going to be rubbish. Actually, yeah, so bored for all of it. But it's the most fun I've had in a film in quite a long time, you know, I, you know seeing it uh, to, you know, I, I didn't empathise with the characters and, you know, I was just kind of going through it. But this, it balances uh, being a, like going back to a spectacle and seeing all these crazy things and not knowing what to, what's happening next. And also going to kind of some really emotional moments, like um, when they hear that Harry died and it focuses on Sandra Bullock's character who's crying. Oh, no, sorry, when uh, the old lady yeah. gets blown up and she goes away and she focuses on some of the books, crying and kind of lingers, it cuts the, the high action theme um, and it kind of shows all the fear and it really allows empathy to kind of see through the thing. And, you know, so much so that I grab, I try to grab the gun as I'm sliding off the train. <laughs> you know, it was, oh, I don't know, I realised it was a film. Uh, you know, I, I think it just, it, it just really balanced that well and I realised that last you know. Great, yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you got caught up in it, you know. Um, and another reason for showing it as well is that this is a film that if you have seen or you do see it, you would probably your generation would probably watch this on a laptop now, you know. And I do think it's a different experience. I mean, I haven't seen this in on a big screen for 25 years, and it's such a different experience. It really does. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm tense. I'm, you know, like, what? How, how's it going to be resolved? I know it's going to be resolved, but the it is in that the way that. It's a beautifully edited film. It knows how long to hold those moments. It knows how long to run a sequence. It's really, you know, I think it, it's more, not luck, because it, but in a sense, if you look at Jan de Bont's career, 
this is a what big else has he done um, he did he, I think, no that was Rennie Harling I always get him and Rennie Harling confused Yander Bond did Twister which I also like oh. um, again a very kind of like simple idea it's just people running towards and away from tornadoes um, it came out two years <laughs> after this it's yeah um, it's good uh, better than that sounds um, but but he didn't really and he, he was like a DOP or something before and then yeah he didn't have this feels like one of those films where it just it, it comes together you know and yeah the premise is a bit rubbish and it is a 90s kind of post Keanu kind of you know just like big it almost it almost feels like it could be a spoof um, it is such a high concept um, and a lot of films I think have tried to do what it does you know a Speed 2 Cruise Control for example <laughs> um, Paul Sandra Bullock back for that um, don't know what she did to deserve that um, but it's one of those things like we say it takes it takes its construction and its aesthetic so seriously it looks simple and I think a lot of filmmakers afterwards a lot of films and certainly studios thought oh we'll just replicate mm. that and they they didn't they don't take it seriously enough so it doesn't quite work this is just so tight in but it's way. it's the confidence in the premise as well mm. isn't it like if you if you are feeling oh this is uh, uh thinking looking at the script thinking that well this is silly um and you you put some kind of self-conscious quips in there then it would probably you know uh lose the tension that it has doesn't it so yeah. and that's why i think it made me realize again that the 90s are one of my favorite decades for films because because it's big and boisterous and so wonderfully unself-conscious in yeah. the way that so that's yeah it's really really nice about it it's yeah just, one yeah. of the yeah one of the notes that i was kind of thinking oh what what's what am i going to see having not rewatched it in quite a few years you know what are the politics what are the politics going to be yeah. of the film and the note was none there's no politics in the film really like, there's, yeah. there's there's lines but it's not a political film it's no. not got an agenda it's not got it's not saying anything yeah. Um, yeah, it's even it's even in the dialogue, isn't it? When the Sandra Bullock character says, "What did we do to deserve this? Did we blow up the guy's country?" And Keanu says, "No, he just wants money." Yeah. So we don't, as an audience, we're not even made to worry about any any political implications. All we know need to know he's a bad guy, he's a psycho, he's got with bombs, and that's kind of all we yeah, need to know. I mean, the, the 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 politics are, I guess, the the politics that are in it are more kind of uh, subtle than that in the sense that it's a very clear, I guess, uh, class distinction, white middle class people drive cars and uh, black people latinos and uh, asian people take the bus to work that's that's all apart from Glenn, apart from tune man exactly um, yeah, with you his know, uh, yeah, new jag yes. but it has to be yeah. destroyed yeah um, of course yeah 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 no i think it's um yeah it's interesting thinking about how you know when you describe dennis hobbs character that you're, you're almost describing the way Heath Ledger's character in the Joker in the Dark Knight is, mm-hmm. you know, he's interested in chaos and like just blowing the world up, and it's he hasn't got this like main, and it's like well, but but they so much is put on top of that with around mm-hmm. the film, whereas here that is literally it. That is literally he wants it. his money. Yeah. He doesn't he has no he has no care about what he'll do to get it, and that's as far as it goes. Um, which is interesting, kind of the '90s is post Unabomber's post manifesto. He doesn't have a manifesto. Nope. He is a white terrorist, but he doesn't have a cause other than give me my money. Um, the other thing I want to know as well is like Sandra Bullock is brilliant. You know, she's really, really brilliant. She's really funny and she has the best withering look when the when Ortiz tells her like how to drive. Yes. Like, you know, she, she's just like, yeah, thanks for that. Like, yeah. you know, um, I'm doing all right. Like classic bit of mansplaining mm-hmm. right in the middle of this film. Like actually Sandra just, you know, she's like, dude, leave me alone. Um, and even Keanu is complimenting her on her driving. So. Yeah, yeah, because he knows like yeah. that's, some, that's some serious driving, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> Right. Anyone else? I saw someone. Oh, yep. We got. We go one at the back, and then send all the. Oh, there's three. Yeah, cool. Just send it round to. We'll get to everyone. We're warmed up now. 
<laughs> what I really enjoyed, I think, about this was it was really refreshing to kind of see these these character tropes that are often uh, that you see like quite often in act, in the action genre, but they they're a bit different here in the sense you know usually you know you have the the lone wolf hero that you were talking about and uh, Keanu uh, Keanu's character Jack. At the start of the film, he definitely sort of came off as that, and maybe like a bit of a loose cannon sort of thing. But when it really got down to it, you saw that how much he relied on uh, on everyone around him, and uh, that really like plays off well, like with the other kind of characters that you see, like you have this, you know, the senior but more responsible partner. Uh, then you have their like firm but well-meaning captain, and uh, even Sandra Bullock, who's kind of like the unwilling woman dragged along. And these are all like tropes that you see really often, but the way that the writing and the acting kind of, uh, kind of uh, goes together makes these characters feel like quite, quite in depth, even though they're actually not when you really like look at it objectively, just because they're played so well, and uh, uh, and they kind of like they uh, they subvert the tropes at some point. It's like uh, you have you had his partner who obviously. Uh, Express skepticism towards him, like the start of the film and his, uh, and his methods, but like he was quite quick to turn around and trust him because in the end that was it. He trusted him, and that really like kind of like plays and builds into the whole theme of community that the film kind of has going, because uh, everyone kind of has that vulnerability that makes him feel like a real person and not like a character trope that uh, that we kind of see but don't actually connect to. Yeah, yeah it's, good observation. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting when you when when we're talking about you know the film invokes the sense of community because that it's obviously the the complete antithesis of the well arch American ethic of individualism, <laughs> isn't it? And to have a, a Hollywood film set in a public uh, a means of public transport <laughs> yeah. is you know is also in a way deeply ironic because it is all about cars, isn't it? And it's all about you know uh, the, the really the only way or the only time you will take a bus is when you absolutely you have you have no money or for some reason you can't drive a car so um yeah so uh, but it uh it it works uh because you're uh immediately invested in the story because as you're saying the characters are set up so well and so well acted yeah yeah just you know if we're going to add a layer on there you know the, the the los angeles location kind of is again plays into that you know it is the it's the end of the road for the kind of manifest destiny you yeah. know that the individual will go out and seek their fortune and yeah. their glory and they arrive and out you know they arrive on the west coast yes. for that but here everyone's been there but they, they they all rely on each other there's a lovely moment where uh cameron from ferris bueller gets saved and um ortiz gives him a big hug on the you know like it's just it's just tiny little moments where you're just like yeah you yes. know it really is yeah it's very anti-american in in those kind of ways of mm -hmm. you know like yeah um although keone calls him gigantor at one point <laughs> Which was yeah, just where did like, that come I'm from? I'm trying to think that must be some kind of 80s or 90s reference. Uh, cartoon reference or something. Um, or it's just racist, I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, go, do you want to go to the back and then we'll come back down? It was kind of nice just to watch a film that embraced its own simplicity and then get bogged down and trying to be more than actually is. I think at its core it's quite comedic. Yep. But in a way, I know it sounds a bit far-fetched, but it kind of reminded me of Robocop in the sense that it knew when to take itself seriously enough, but also when to have fun with its premise. And so as a result, it's a fun movie, and it knows exactly what it is, but 
you can take it seriously enough in the action scenes, which is important. And I think what makes it even better is in an age where you know CGI wasn't as prevalent, it was nice to just embrace its visceral intensity and just seeing the action on screen and never feeling like it looked fake. It was always real. And you know, the cinematography I think played a really important part in that. Yeah, good shout. Yeah, I, I absolutely yeah. agree that, that the, the, the physicality of it, the, 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 uh, the fact that the explosions are actually explosions, that the, the, the cut to uh, Keanu and Sandra as, you know, the bus explodes into the, into the plane is them really being hit by, you know, the wave of an explosion. You know, that's not CGI, that's a real explosion there. And it, yeah, I absolutely agree that, you know, the, the, the sense of, 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 of realness and kind of tangibility um, is, is a very important part to the film. Working yeah. as well as it does, absolutely. Yeah, it really builds the peril. And yeah, I think it is funny, you know. And I think again, it's 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 casting those actors who know um, know how to know how to deliver it. You know, Keanu has two great lines. Isn't he one at the start where he says, "What's going to stop it?" He's like the basement. the basement. And then later on, when he says, "You know, like we got lucky," he's like, "Why?" It's like the, the bomb didn't go off. You know, there's really funny. Yeah, there are really funny moments with it. And again, it's good performers knowing and a good script knowing when when you need a bit of levity when you need a little bit of empathy. And as well, I mean, Sandra Bullock's a really funny performer. You know, I mean, Keanu and her both kind of almost made their name in comedies, you know. So um, that move from being comedic and having great timing and coming into that role really does make make it possible to have those moments in a way that a straight actor might just go for the, you know, the straight, you know, the pensive. And it's no, there's none of that. There's lots of tone in really small moments, um, which really kind of moves it along. Is that, it's the ghost of Dennis Hopper. We're not talking about him enough. Um, you're great, Dennis. Um, thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's quite interesting how you set it up. It was quite a juxtaposition between like, the obvious concept of having to stay above 50 and the speed and the speed that everything was physically moving at in the film and between the actual storyline itself. The storyline was quite slow. It took its time, any time to sort of stop guessing, okay, what's the next uh, thing going to go wrong? What's going to happen? Give you time to sort of try and guess. And I just thought the juxtaposition between that, between the actual speed and the pace of the film is quite interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting as well. And also, yeah, like... The like you're saying, they're all trapped. They're, they're all moving at speed at the same time, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Whereas they're not really... They don't really go anywhere. You know, they are kind of contained. And like you say, all those, all those dramatic moments and those kind of relationships can play out. That, I think that is... That juxtaposition you're talking about is, is why, why you believe the relationship. Yes. You know, because the, you, get, you, get, you get the time in it. You know, they're not dying from country to country. They're not dying from space to space. The buses... Mm -hmm. They're all they're all just on the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really yeah. Nice. So yeah, exactly. So there's there's an interesting kind of difference, I guess, between uh, this film and then say the Bourne films, where it's basically yeah, you, in this you have objects moving, you have the lift moving, the bus moving, the train moving, but uh, the the action hero is as you're saying relatively stationary and mm -hmm. relatively passive, whereas Jason Bourne is is all about uh, Bourne being in constant movement and that being accompanied by very fast cuts and and very kind of visceral camera work. So that's kind of uh, uh, yeah, uh, a shift in there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. essentially like three scenes, isn't it? It's like, yeah. like you say, lift, bus, train. train. That's it, you yeah. know, and, and then all this. Like the, um, the danger and the element is always external. It's outside of this, like, well, I wouldn't say safe, but like internal space is where they're at, and this is where they're hurtling towards something else, yeah. rather than something coming at them. I think it's quite different in action, usually, but 
danger coming towards you, dodge this, jump that, whereas you're in this moving um, bus or um, train or lift and the problem's outside and you've got to figure out a way how you're going to uh, stop this that's outside, how, how do you get outside? Yeah, how do you stop moving towards it yeah. rather yeah. than it moving yeah. towards you? It's, yeah. it's, it's like reacting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Cool, great. great. Yes, we're converting. We're converting <laughs> to the speed cult. Yeah, do you want to send it down? We've got a couple more down here. Just a little thing, but I loved the um, advert on the back of the bus, which if you didn't catch it was money isn't everything, and then underneath the brackets, yeah, right. Yeah. There's lots of those, isn't there? There's lots of really lovely visual. The, the, the one at the end where it kind of bursts out and it says, like, this is a safe site two and three days since the last accident. And exactly. then this, tube, this tube train comes through. And what's playing at the cinema? 2001. 2001, a space of, like, so random that it's just like, why, why is 2001 playing at, at Man's Chinese Theatre on this random 994 day? It's just great. Um, and what I love about it as well, that's kind of Yanderbont all over. It's like, I love 2001. It's like, there's no relationship between these two <laughs> movies at all. There's no, like, it's just like, I like that movie. I'm going to put it on. Um, yeah. And it just, it's so incongruous, but it's just like, yeah. Um, yeah. There's lots of little things like that on rewatches where you start to notice how, like, like the, the, the holding of the hands. And there's a few, few moments as well. And like Harry's moment, Jeff Daniels acting when, he realises this bomb's going to you know, go off. He's going to die. Yeah, there's so many small moments where you, it just it just elevates it above the standard fare. Um, cool. Yeah. Another anti-American. Uh, I had a. It was interesting how you said that the only motivation was money. Is uh, for like the destruction. Is I got the impression that it was more of a. It was more about challenging the sort of establishment, and it was a game of. Um, <coughs> he, he felt so sort of betrayed of like giving up his life, and it was more of a sort of game to say, like, I've, I've done this for my entire life, like, it's, I'm challenging you to sort of uh, prove that you're better than me. Like, uh, I don't know, I can't sort of word it right, but I just, I think. For me, my interpretation was there was a bit of motivation of sort of uh, just like a challenge as well as mine. Yeah, I think I, I think I think you can read onto it. I think, but you have to do that work. I think that you know, I'm not necessarily sure that it's there explicitly. You know, we don't see him. We don't see him ranting and raving about the injustice. There's a little bit at the mm. end, but it's very small. But there's, there's a bit about the watch sort of saying. Yeah, I, I think the game between him and Jack is a real thing, and yeah. he's enjoying that, you know. But the watch is what you know is, is a line that Harry says, you know. Another, yes. Another and to, to give Harry a clue yeah. that he is yeah, yeah. actually the you know so, the yeah, person behind yeah. it. I think so. the game is there, but I think that's it's inviting you to do it so that it doesn't bog down the plot. Like mm -hmm. the, we don't see him build any of the bombs. There's none of that fetishization of anything. It's just like you know he's already done all that but we don't know what that process was like um and he can't yeah he does enjoy the game but he also enjoys watching sports while it's happening you know he's very american isn't he like he's drinking his coke and watching american football yeah. um he's just so weird um yeah and yanderbont's dutch as well i think as well so i think a lot of that stuff is is an outsider's idea of, Point of, view. of america or you know which i think is probably adds little little flavors to it um yeah no but i do th I, I think yeah 
I think the reading into the backstory and the reading into the motivation is, is you, you can do it, but the film doesn't, isn't affected by it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the time when you're trying to read in all that stuff, the film kind of collapses under the weight. But like, like we were saying, because it's so simple, you, it can be both. You know, if you want to read in, um, that's, you know, that, I think that's probably there. Um, but the film is kind of also just saying, this is, this is, it is this to this point, to this point, to this point. Yeah. Uh, I was just quickly wanted to say, like, there was like fantastic uh, respite just as the police are closing in on the house because up to then you've had so much noise and like visual cinematic experience, and then the like, sound design just goes silent and you just hear the footsteps. And I just thought it was a really, it's sort of like letting the audience just have a little breath and, like, before it goes into like the next act. Yeah, I was I was thinking exactly the same thing that uh, you, only in that moment when it cuts to uh, Harry and the SWAT team kind of going to enter the house do you realise how much constant speed movement and noise you have been hearing for the last forty five minutes and you suddenly go oh, oh, did the film stop why is it suddenly quiet so um, yeah so it's uh, it works very well to kind of uh, to kind of throw that into relief doesn't it yeah absolutely agree yes yeah cool. There was a couple down here as well, I think people had. Yeah, it's coming down. Can we send it down this way? Thank you. Yeah, that's a bit in that silence. You kind of know, don't you? You kind of know this is this is not right because it's not noisy. Exactly. Not, you know, like it's not <laughs> something's amiss. Um, I just um, looking at the context of actually sitting here as the audience is very interesting to me because. I feel like if a film like this, and it was made in this day and age, uh, we've been raised hearing words like terrorism and bombs like on the news like very often, and it's a very serious subject because it, it happens a lot in the world at this moment, and it's a, it's a global issue. But I feel like the film was timeless in so many ways, including that we were really transported back to a time where um, you could instantly, like the villain, is like a traditional villain, like he isn't, you know, that's not a realistic human being, it's just, oh, the madman, and you know, he's missing a finger, like, it, like it's like, it's almost um, takes you back to like the childish one of the cinema when no one can actually be that, be that evil, and um, they really, they don't make it, they make it a very theatrical bad guy, which is, I think, a, like a really good element of the cinema is actually taking you back to a time where like, it's nice to believe that actually stuff like this can't happen. And it's and it also, I feel like, if, again, if a film in this day and age was made about that, there would be so many political elements and there would be, you know, the guy on the bus that was the tourist guy, he would probably be racist and be like, oh, I wonder what religion the, the terrorist is. And it would be something like that. But it was just, it was nice to be transported back to an audience, an audience back in that time, which they didn't have any of those thoughts and the film really carries that and it's really timeless because of that as well and, it, and that's how you are able to have laughs through it as well because it's not serious because it's like no 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 it's just a random evil guy with like a missing finger it's not like a serious film although there's tension there's not political issues like you said earlier it's you know it's it's funny in places and it's it it a lot of the like really theatrical shots reminds me of like the first shot in the first Jurassic Park film where it zooms in on the guy's mouth when he's being eaten by a dinosaur. Like it's like it's not it's not serious. It's it carries that um uh, it's you're able to laugh at moments, which I think is um 
Yes, very, very interesting uh, observation. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, uh, I understand what you mean in the sense that it's that thing of uh, it's fantastical to an extent, isn't it? He's he's a he's a, a, a super villain in the sense that he is, uh, you know, he's not like you say a real human being, but he's, you know, he's so he's so evil that you think, okay, so this is I'm I'm in the, I'm in a safe space. I'm watching a fantastical story unfold, um, which uh, yeah uh, can be you know one of the one of the joys of cinema um but i think um uh yeah the, the trick is to uh to to manage to uh kind of i guess touch on uh, uh real issues and 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 current issues mm -hmm. and still um uh, uh well draw on or build on that magic of the cinema i guess what do you think Neil? yeah no i think i th it's 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 tricky i think because it's clearly a pre nine eleven movie. Exactly. You know, like, and, and what I think I know what you're saying in the sense that you can't you can't really do that now. No. You know, whether Hollywood hasn't really done that since since nine eleven. Um, what's interesting about it is that it feels kind of cartoonish and classic supervillain because he's white. You know, and I think yeah. as well about you know you were sort of saying about the politics, but the same year is True Lies, which has really racist depictions of you know, Middle Eastern terrorists. And you go back to something like Back to the Future and its portrayal of, you know, which is beloved and is an awesome movie, but it's portrayal of the, um, is it the Lebanese? Um, what? Libyan. The Libyans, you know, it's portrayal of the Libyans is really problematic. You know, you know, it, the, the pre, you know, pre 9-11, like depictions of terrorists were, you know, just ran, were very kind of general and, and racist and stuff. But they were kind of, but the, the characters were built in the same way that, this character's built, you know, it's kind of thirsty for power or money yes. and like, you know, um, but obviously the, the context is different here um, and that has that has been lost um, but, you know, in, in the sense of how it, particularly how it portrays white American villains you know, um, I don't think it's been lost necessarily in terms of how it portrays Middle Eastern and Arab no. villains, you know, a lot of post 9-11 cinema is even more, or it's more directly it knows it's being Kind of very detrimental and very, you know, uh, critical of, um, uh, of kind of you know Middle Eastern and Arab communities. Um, but what's changed, I think, is 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 its portrayal of kind of well white supervillains and and their yeah. motives and their engagement in the world post 9/11 and, and knowing that every terrorist kind of representation is going to have a context. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's. It is interesting to watch it knowing that a lot of things it's doing, it, it's, it doesn't know what's coming. You know, it's interesting to watch films that are doing something that is very common, that has such a mark like 9-11 where everything changed in the way those, those things were represented. And this film has no idea it's coming. So exactly. it's just like, like you say, it's a supervillain with no motive, no ideology. He wants money. He's happy to, you know, put hundreds of American lives uh, in danger, um, but because he's because he's American, it's kind of it feels kind of different. It's it's almost like he's not American. Mm -hmm. He's not white. He is like you say a super villain. Mm -hmm. um, whereas representations of the same year um, and around that time that were not white were very very politically loaded. But even but they weren't necessarily picked up at the time. And it's definitely taken a kind of post nine eleven reflection to actually acknowledge and analyze what those reputations were saying. And it, you know. I think it's it's important to note now that that doesn't mean that you can't watch Back to the Future and think it's awesome, you know. But it, but acknowledging that what was being done at the time, you know, 
probably could have been handled more sensitively or, or was rooted in the context of, of how everything was done at the time, I think is, is, is kind of key. Um, and because you can trace that lineage through to, you know, to the sort of post 9-11 cinema. Um, and it's interesting how, how, few, how few white kind of terrorists there are apart from in Bond movies, um, but how if they do turn up, what they're, how they justify what they do and how political it is and how rooted in particularly kind of capitalist kind yes. of ideologies it is and the way the world has worked and how they are essentially responding to the world's, you know, almost kind of tectonic movement on its own and I'm just benefiting from society and human nature. You know, it's really interesting to see that that change. It is a, a both aesthetically and kind of ideologically a pure movie mm -hmm. just before yeah. things, yeah. well, five years before kind of things really changed. Yeah, and I think also uh, in uh, kind of uh, action uh, and crime films now, there's, there's a lot more of a tendency to kind of... Uh, Uh, flesh out the, the villain a lot more, kind of make his interior psychology a lot more complex. You know, the Joker is the best mm. example of that, or the uh, Javier Bardem character in Skyfall, yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, um, uh, the, the villain becomes as much, an, uh, you know, of an important character as the hero in terms of his, his background, his motivations, what is going on in his head, um, you know, whereas uh, that's not the case in this film at all. I mean, Dennis Hopper's <coughs> got, you know, a much, much smaller part, and his part is very clearly defined um you know he's he's evil he's got bombs he wants money and that's it yeah. Yeah. literally like he's not the alter ego of keanu reeves character they're no. just they're cops and that's a plot device yeah. to to have the gold watch and track it yeah, yeah. um yeah oh yeah do you want to send it along uh do you think the um scale of the kind of the, the danger there's any about 20 people in the bus at a time, and there's only about 100 people affected or could be affected at any one point. Do you think that would work as well post 9 11? Do you think this scale would be as worrying to the audience as it was in the film from 1994? I think that Hollywood has thought that and has decided to populate its films with hundreds of people at risk and only a couple of people can save them. Um, and yep. there must be hundreds and thousands of people that die and are at risk, you know. But I don't, I don't agree that there wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to get the same thing now. I think that it feels like there was a lot of cultural decisions made about particularly action and blockbuster movies, yep. um, about what a hero should do, you know, what an American hero should do, um, and who's at risk and how they're at risk, you know. Um, but I, I, I think that this, you know, the scale of the human drama is absolutely right. And it allows the scale of the physical spectacle to play out, you know, and just feel really, really kind of resonant because, you know, you know, you, you, you see, I mean, there's more people on the bus than you actually get to spend time with, but, but you, you know, you know more than two people, It's, yeah. you know, there's like five or six people, you know, and that you're invested in, you know, just from the repetition of seeing them over and over again and having one line here or there in a way that, When I watch modern blockbuster films, I don't always get the same because I, I, who's, who's at stake? And that kind of starts really with Titanic, I think, in a way that, you know, there's so many people and the people that you're actually spending time with are not interesting. And there's yeah. this great swathe of people who could be interesting and you're supposed to empathize with, but you never get to, you, you, they, they, you're not connected to them. It feels like a disconnect. I know that's pre-9-11, but um, it feels like that now we live in an age where there's a lot of, 
you know, that they think that if you have a lot of people at risk, that will automatically ramp up the drama. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, but it, it could almost yeah. lead to to you disconnecting from it. Yeah. So that, like, one example that I'm thinking about is the the, the third Nolan Batman film with the mm. with the two ships being, you know, at, at, or ferries at being at danger of being blown up. That is, it's almost the the people in danger become this abstract concept, and it is all about the hero and the villain. It's not really about the people they save. Whereas when with this film, it's because you're in the the uh, the space uh, with them on the bus, uh, there is much more of a sense of an immediate danger. And I think, to, to answer your question, I think um, if if a film was was written well and directed well, um, it, it shouldn't really matter, you know, how many people how many people's lives are on stake. If it, if it lets you connect with them and invest in them, um, then uh, yeah, uh, then actually they they're more they're more uh, real than if you have, you know, uh, well, the hundreds and hundreds of people who remain ciphers or remain very yeah. abstract. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples in recent years. I can't at the minute. But I'm sure there's probably a few examples where that kind of, that trend is bucked, where, you know, it is an isolated case um, and it's a few people and it just feels more, 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 more immediate um, and that, yeah... Um, it's interesting to see sort of Marvel films reflect on the criticisms of it and try to deal with that stuff. You know, um, all these people die in buildings, or you know, like Man of Steel, like how they try and then, re- but they don't ever reckon with it by getting smaller. Yes, <laughs> well, exactly. And then so in like, the in the last yeah. one, you basically get the you know uh, the 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 future of the whole world is at stake, or the whole world is is being blown up, yeah. or you get you know the apocalypse affected by Thanos. So, yeah. This yeah. feels like the whole world's at stake yeah. in this movie because it's a few lives at stake. Exactly. You know, it really is. You zero in on on understanding that, yeah, what what really is at stake on an individual basis. You know, yeah. Um, there's probably much more coherent and smarter writing on that than. But, yeah. <laughs> anyone else before we we wrap up? We've got probably time for one more. If anyone wants to. No, we're all talked out. Cool. Well, um, thank you for your contributions. That was really great um, observations and insights. Um, I'm really pleased you just enjoyed it as a, as a group. It was nice to see with an audience and laugh and, and feel the tension. Um, thank you very much, Verena, for joining me and, and offering such great uh, insight as well. Thank you. We will see you again. Uh, thanks to the Poly for hosting us, and we'll see you again on The Cinematologist. All right, pop quiz. Airport. Gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're 100 feet away. What do you think? Shoot the hostage. What? Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? All right, gentlemen, what we have here are 13 passengers in an express elevator. Bomb's already taken out cables. Bomber wants $3 million or he blows the emergency brakes. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? He can strike anywhere, at any time. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Why are they messing with me? Do they think I'm doing this for fun? (laughs) For L.A. cop Jack Traven. Tell me again, Harry, why did I take this job? Come on, 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch. Cool. The game began. Very exciting, Jack. Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. 
If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Now. Are you insured? Yeah, why? He's the only solution. We just got a ransom demand from your terrorist. Says he's rigged the city bus. Where's Jack? Where do you think? Stay on or get off. Get off. This is much better. Everybody hold on! trigger aimed at your head, what do you do? What do you do? Speed. Get ready for rush hour. Thanks very much to the Polly at Falmouth for hosting us again. Thanks to Verena for co-chairing and being a kind of great uh, sparring partner for that. And thanks to our our freshers audience for a really committed and interesting kind of conversation it was daunting i think on the first week of term well this was before the first week of term to be charged with kind of saying stuff um, in any forum so thanks very much to everyone for for contributing so dario what did you make of kind of revisiting speed and and, and this idea of it of where it sits in the the kind of the action landscape yeah i really enjoyed re-watching it i mean to be honest with you it's it's a film i've seen a lot i've seen many many times I think it's it does do that that thing of pure action, where I totally agree with what you were saying. Where it's it, it is outside of ideology in many ways. I mean, again, that's a problematic thing to say because you can read it ideologically in many in, in various ways. I think, but I think it, it it doesn't have an internal ideological agenda. Yes, you could say that the Dennis Hopper character maybe has got some, you know, working class grievances that come out. But it's interesting how they're, they're nuanced around cop versus cop. It's like not outsider versus cop. So that almost solves the ideology, doesn't it? Because if Keanu doesn't, if thinks he's in the wrong, then he's in the wrong. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, I think it solves that quite, quite quickly. I still I can't get over the bridge jump scene. You know what I mean? That is as close to jumping the shark. Um, and, and looking back now, it's kind of like, would it have earned it back in the day? And does it earn it now? I don't know, but it, you know it, it, the ridiculousness of it, it is kind of like makes me laugh now, and, and sort of I enjoy that 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 stupidness of it because I think it's one of those, and, and you touched on it in the in the um, in the talk. It, it takes itself seriously, just to the right amount. I think there, I mean, there's certain moments of comedy in it, and I think there are there are there are great lines which I'll come back to, but it, but that sense of it is not it is not tongue in cheek. In the way that that say the transition from Mission Impossible One and Two to the later Mission Impossibles turn into something else. As soon as Simon Pegg arrives in Mission Impossible, you can't take anything seriously anymore. You know, even though it's great the later ones, but it's it's kind of like you know the first one is quite serious, and I think that maybe it is of a time pre nine eleven, as you were saying, where it, it still it still coats the spectacle and the ridiculousness of of the spectacle. In an air of in an air of seriousness and real world real reality, 
that you know the, the the bridge jump you know just about doesn't doesn't kind of happen and i think that the cgi or the lack of cgi is a, is a key aspect of this and and maybe again one of the reasons why i find it a lot more difficult to get on board with today's action movies than I did back there because you do feel a visceral reaction. And then even, I mean, we were laughing when they get to the airport and they get out of the, the you know, they, they get on the truck, the, the little, you know, metal plate to skirt underneath and escape with Sandra Buckle. And, and then, and then the, the, the bus does have to crash into an airplane. It's like, how much budget have we got left? Let's blow up an airplane. You know what I mean? It's just like, yes, this is, this is sort of eighties, nineties action budgeting going on here. It's really good. And then you, and then you sort of realize that the, the last third is almost kind of like almost sort of superfluous. And I do think that it, it does, it does kind of fall apart narratively. Cause like what would Sandra Bullock be doing there wandering around the streets near where that's going? I mean, it's just totally, it's totally ridiculous, but you know, they, they, they've got to kind of finish it off somewhere. I'm just wondering whether, you know, they've got to catch the bad guy, haven't they? They've got to sort of figure that out and moving on to another, another scenario is is the way to do that and you've almost got like because you said that you have the two bookends i think it works narratively in that sense even though the plot and its realist context just completely goes out any any sense of that goes out the window but like you say i think you do say in in the in the talk it kind of does earn it because it, it just keeps you on the edge all the time you know yeah no yeah it's committed to the spectacle it's committed to this chemistry between um Bullock and, and Reeves, you know, which is, you know, almost a kind of lustful one rather than a romantic one. You know, like there's there's no sense at the end that they're going to be together forever. But this is definitely a bonding moment that they're going to want to they're going to want to realise, which I think yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. is great. Um, it does take itself seriously in, in its mission to be spectacular. Like, I, I think that's really, really astute in terms of like it's and this idea of the narrative working, but the plot not working, I think is, is, is spot on. You know, like it's <laughs> yeah. how do we how do we kind of get and that the bridge jump feels like yeah okay we need this we need this moment in the middle um and audiences will either go with it or they won't but yeah you get you, you get good performers and everybody on the bus is up to the job um you know and, and joe morton is oh, obviously, joe morton's just you know quality just absolute quality um prestige in that moment you know just just kind of drag literally drags you along with it which i think is um yeah it's exciting it's interesting that you say about the peg thing there because i do think that that's a kind of signifier, yeah, of 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 where a lot of movies are now, which is is this kind of commentary on itself, or an ironic distance, or a detachment, or a sense of having yeah. to underplay some of the ridiculousness because of shifts in in kind of yeah global and viewing context at the same time, which is kind of makes me, which is why you know someone like Jason Statham is an interesting interesting action star, I think now because. He's clearly someone who looks like and a lot of the time performs like someone from that 80s, 90s trio of, you know, the Planet Hollywood trio. But but he's he, he is funny and aware enough to know that it, 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 it has to be ironic now. You know, he can't. There has to be a level of of distance and a kind of knowing glance about it because that's yeah. the the idea is no one. No one buys it now. No one. No one will buy the ridiculousness of speed as a hundred million dollar movie um and 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 reward it in Mm. the same way which i think is 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 just just the way that the culture shifted yeah i mean it's interesting what you were talking about in terms of dennis hopper as well and his sort of position as a as, as the kind of white working class terrorist and 
the comparison with other films of the time and, and sort of later films as well that, that definitely depict a, a stereotype of evil around a race or an ethnicity or a particular identity that we, you know, we would probably consider problematic now. And I think what's interesting is we're in the era now where I think that, that you know, there could be people who are identifying with the Dennis Hopper character. See, he is an identity now that is, has been, you know, belittled or, or subjugated and, you know, he's got a grievance these days. Do you know what I mean? It's really interesting how yeah. sort of watching it from 2019, it's like, yeah, what's his... I think his deal is 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 much more readily re- readily available to be projected onto that character than it would have been pre pre nine eleven and especially sort of pre Trump, let's say. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, and I also think that that's 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 the twenty nine thing, twenty nineteen thing, isn't it? Which is what's the ideology? Yeah. You know, yeah. what what where do where do I fit into this thing? And I think that that's what we we're trying to sort of talk a little bit about in the in the Q and A is like. I don't think, and you mentioned, I think you said it really well, and you say about the the loop, the police loop, which kind of closes off the, the the film doesn't contain an ideology, you know, it's a, but, Mm. but that's not to say you can't project onto it. I mean, you can project onto anything, but I do think, yeah, it's interesting in 2019 to look at what Hopper's character might represent in a wider cultural context. And it's kind of like, yeah, this is, it's almost a moment for, yeah, like you say, kind of, the working class blue collar American who feels aggrieved at the system and is going to, you know, fight back. Yeah. And that's what Joker says as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it, that, that was, that was kind of in the water as well when we were thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it, it takes a certain kind of, I don't want to say star, but, but, but on screen presence to sell this movie. And I think, you know, you talked a lot about Keanu, but I think it is clear that Dennis Hopper does sell that, that character really, really well because he is, he is sort of maniacally enjoying it, and even like at the very beginning, is it, that sense of he's he's just does the elevator bombing, and yet the next day he's done he's set up the speed bombing as well, the bus bombing as well, and it's kind of like hang on a minute, he he's supposed to spend two years on this bus thing, why has he got the elevator bombing sorted out? He must be like multitasking like mag, and it's just like if you if you sit back and think about it, it's again it's that thing the plot doesn't work but the narrative does, yeah, um, and then he's got great, I mean he just delivers some great one-liners you know like the 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 pop quiz hotshot stuff and do not attempt to grow a brain and my personal favorite we've got all the balls in the world right here you know what i mean (laughs) which you know if i could work into a sentence i would but it's uh it's very difficult but yeah hard to do in hard to do in timetabling meetings no it it? is really especially in lectures that would be it it would be just complaints galore i think um but yeah what's interesting about dennis hopper is that you know this is a period where he's he's literally just doing it for the money. Yeah. You know, there's that famous quote where his his kid asks him, why why did he do Super Mario Brothers? And he said, well, you see those, those expensive trainers on your feet. Yeah. You know, that's why, I'd, you know, he, he I, I don't think he's even interested in no. this as a kind of movie. So he's literally being that kind of Dennis Hopper villain for, you know, wheeling it out, um, which works perfectly in this in this context. But I don't think he's invested any kind of interior or backstory interior life or backstory into this character he's literally turning up on set chewing the scenery yeah making you know wise cracks and um and mostly ad-libbing i think stuff when he has to sit in front of all these screens um and doing his thing and it was it was it's yeah his motivation is money to make the film and his motivation in the film is money so it kind yeah, of works yeah. just that just 
it doesn't need to be anything more than that. You know, yeah. He's perfectly cast in that sense. Yeah, and I think uh, another thing, just just sort of thinking about the direction and the fact that this is the first feature is just incredible to me. You know, I think it was John de Bont's first film, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, which is just it's just insane, really. And I, I wonder how much he'd been a DP before. Yeah, then, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm wondering how much the there was a very clear script here, and he thought, yeah, this just is it's just going to work, and therefore I'm not going to kind of mess around with it too much. I've, I mean, I've, I'm just speculating here, but also I think that like go, talking about the lineage then, and, and moving on maybe to today's action films, but like I think that there's sort of a this does trigger a, a series of, uh, of of sort of situational action films. So it's something like you mentioned Die Hard, and then Air Force One, and Cliffhanger, and and these sort of movies that, that are around a kind of situation where there isn't much going to change. I mean, yeah, I, I get it. There's three situations here, but they're all ostensibly the same. It's people people trapped in a situation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, said, I can't. I think you say it in the, in the talk. Is there are there any other films of the last ten or twenty years where it's action for action's sake, where you just don't think, oh, this is this is actually superficial because of it, and I'm not, you know, you can only enjoy it to a certain level, like a a, a really throwaway level, or are there examples where it's like I am totally in this? I mean, the the biggest one, I mean, the most obvious one that I would I would say has worked in that way is Mad Max Fury Road, where I don't think. Yeah, because we know the the context of that world, you don't need to be explained. It doesn't need to explain this is a post, you know, apocalyptic dystopia and all that kind of stuff. And it's very simplistically on this road chase and then the chase back. You know what I mean? It, it's very similar in that sense to speed, I think. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know if since the screening, whether you'd whether you'd thought of any other films that work kind of in this way of pure action and, and yet. They're, they're good enough to sustain that without you thinking this is just kind of nonsense things blowing up all the time. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of John Wick, which I think does that that similar thing of sets up in the first five minutes or the first ten minutes. This is where it's going. Uh, widower living on his own, isolated. Invaders in his house. They kill his dog. He's going out for revenge, you know. And you know you know, it's something... You know it's the dog is symbolic. You just That's all you need to know. So what happens after that is waiting to find out exactly what yeah. the connection is but ultimately it's as simple as that and I think that works very well the other one which I think is a film I think is really underrated and feels like a throwback to those kind of films you're talking about is Dread which came out about the same time as The Raid okay. and they're essentially the same film and I saw Dread first so I prefer it because it is literally essentially the same film and there's apparently there's there's a kind of urban legend about the screenplay and where, how it was moved around and things yeah. like that but um Judge Dredd, a character you kind of recognise and you know he is the law. He turns up at a high-rise and the kind of the, the kingpin is at the top of this high-rise building and the, and the kingpin runs the building. So it's someone who goes in and he has to get, he has to, get to the top of the building. And it's, you know, it, it's propulsive in the same way that those, those films you're talking about are, in the same way that Mad Max Fury, it's the propulsion. It's like we know where we're going and then, and then you're interested in yeah. how you get there. You know, it's like the bomb on the bus. Yeah, yeah, How are yeah. they going to solve this thing, which we are moving forward to, to, towards at all times? And Dread's a great example of literally going up a floor <laughs> at a time to get to this payoff. Um, and it's done with wit and it's done with style. And what's interesting about, well, The Raid um, and and John Wick is similar to that Yann de Bont thing. If these are films made by stunt coordinators who've kind of moved in. So, you know, without being dismissive, you know, they have... 
a real pedigree in delivering a particular thing, which is stunt set pieces, or in the case of Yander Bond, you know, action cinematography. And that's so the fact that for their early films, that's what they really zero in on is is thrilling because mm. they're not they're not necessarily hampered yeah, by yeah, yeah. all the other stuff which storytelling directors might <laughs> kind of want to put in the way of it, you know, and that feels kind of lost, um, which is action directors who are really interested in action as a form of, as the storytelling, you know, not as, as a kind of something that sits alongside a backstory or anything else. It's like this, no, this is the point of it all. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing now coming to sort of today's, you know, quote unquote action movies, because I, th- I do think what you said earlier about the way we break down genre now is much more difficult and problematic than, than maybe it was in the 1980s or in the, the 80s maybe with the start of that that mm. sort of shift of genre hybridity, let's say. Um, but I, I was trying to think about this, about, you know, without going to that place of saying these movies are worse than they were back in the day, because I think that is a really problematic starting point, right? And I was just trying to think of why I don't get, or I don't feel invested to go and see these movies, so therefore then I don't make a comment on them. And it's I, I have this this sort of, thing of the machinery of the of the way that they're put together and the way that they're calling to me or interpolating me as a viewer some people love and some people hate i'm talking about you know i'm talking about the marvel movies the 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 comic book movies here and i think maybe really it's something to do with as something as simple as i am i accept the passive nostalgia of certain types of titles where i don't of other types of titles like say for example when a new mission impossible comes out i will go and see that when I saw the, the trailer to Top Gun Maverick, I turned to B and I said, we're going to see that. And she went, oh yeah. You know what I mean? And it was just because Top Gun was such a massive movie in 1985 when I was 12. You know what I mean? And, and, and even, I mean, some of them haven't worked that way. Like Terminator was a, the Terminator and Terminator 2 were huge movies when I was a kid. And they haven't worked. And I've grown up and it's kind of like, no, I don't want to go see them anymore. The Star Wars, the same. Do you know what I mean? So... There's an element of what I call, I would call passive nostalgia to my own viewing that is sentimental, that allows me to go back or, or see the upgrades of certain titles, but yet completely dismiss other kind of titles. Another example is that I saw advertised the, um, the Ford versus Ferrari with Christian, Christian Bale and, and Matt, Matt Damon. I, I will definitely go and see that, but I will not go and see a Fast and the Furious movie. You know what I mean? So these are sort of internal criterias of judgment that are personal that are contextual that i would argue on some level probably incorrectly that that certain movies have a are better for certain reasons and that's why i'll go and see them but equally i can understand the argument against that which would be you're just putting your subjective projection onto why you think these kinds of movies are better so that's kind of me trying to get a sense of where i am in terms of like action yeah i think i think I think that's interesting to to kind of to ponder. I think yeah, you clearly have a relationship with Tom Cruise going way back, you know. So that's a star that you've kind of grown up with. And what's fascinating about yeah. him now is he is, is 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 seeing a man who you know is older, is your age or older, and yeah. older, older yeah. um, <laughs> and seeing what the hell they're going to do next, you know, and how they're going to pull off topping the last thing. It's almost this kind of daring himself to do something 
ever more ridiculous um, in the service of entertainment. The art, the, the Terminator thing, I think is interesting because obviously that's been in the news recently with the new Terminator movie coming out, which I saw the trailer for and just thought that looks ludicrous and kind of fun. Yeah. You know, like I kind of want to see yeah, it because yeah, yeah. it looks so. Yeah. But what what kind of what kind of put me off was that Terminator Two ends so perfectly, and also because because of our, my understanding of stardom even then was like Schwarzenegger as this character works and then when Rise of the Machines came out however many years later it was like nah I just don't buy that he can do this you know he can't do this thing which he did so amazingly in Terminator and Terminator 2 like I just I I, I know there's going to be almost a let's say that kind of CGI moment of wow this is ridiculous and just seeing Arnie at that age doing that stuff just I just knew it was going to be ridiculous um, so I'm interested to see how they kind of deal with that but that idea of kind of a nostalgia that is tracked through from childhood, adolescence and teen is is exactly what um, the Marvel movies and the DC movies rely on. They're just, that's why it's not about stars because mm. it's about the comic books you read when you were a kid and, you know, the cartoon yeah. TV series that you read when you, that you watched when you were a kid. So it doesn't matter who these people are. You don't have an attachment to Mark Ruffalo, <laughs> but you have an attachment to the Hulk, you know, yeah, yeah, or you might, you, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I, so... Also, what's interesting, I think, as well, is that in those kinds of movies, because of the way they're made and the context that they're made, they're very rarely, they're very rarely risky in terms of their aesthetic. So I think that if you've watched a lot of movies, yeah. and action movies particularly, um, they can kind of feel like you're just seeing the same... You don't feel like you're watching anything new, you know. Um, whereas a film like, which I really like, which is um, Edge of Tomorrow, which I think we both really liked, you know, the, you know, which oh, yeah, is yeah, essentially yeah, Groundhog yeah. Day, a sci-fi Groundhog Day, you know, but it, there's there's enough in it that you feel like I'm, I've not seen this before, you know, and it's Cruise again, and it's just it's just different enough, and that was so when it kind of hits that that it's at a level where the, the, a fewer risks can be taken, or, or more risks than be, can be taken in terms of how we how we actually make action cinema. That's where I'm interested. And there was a great Nick Pinkerton piece on Movie Notebook a few years ago about Jamie Collette's Sarah, who makes these Liam Neeson B movies with, yeah. you know. And I was, it was a really interesting piece about him as a as an auteur and what he's doing. So I kind of checked out these films. And I was like, wow, these are really good action movies, you know, right, in, okay. in that in that traditional vein of, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, very simple plot, kind of lots of B movie actors propping up, but. But yeah. kind of, but driven by a desire to kind of solve a problem through action, and then what's interesting is is to keep working with Liam Neeson over and over again and create this body of work which is where the the star is 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 part of it, and you're going to watch an older Liam Neeson get out of a situation that is kind of presented to him in, in yeah. increasingly kind of you know uh, spectacular ways. So, but but again, that's never going to be at a level of of a speed or even a cliffhanger you know because because that that space is dominated by a different kind of action movie i think yeah and, and i haven't seen any of those movies and i've no desire to because i yeah. think that if if somebody came to me and said this is doing something new with cinema with any any genre i'll watch that film you know if you if you came to me and said look you've got to watch this because i don't care what reservations you've got it, it will tell you something new about cinema it's like I, it's so difficult to see that, you know, with with the contemporary machinery of of commercialized cinema, it you know, it, and and if if one of those films did happen, I would know about it. So therefore, yeah. I can leave, I can park it all and say, yeah, if you like those films, go go and see them. That's that's totally fine. And it's not against that. It's just 
I, I'm not 14 anymore. You know what I mean? And maybe, maybe again, the, the criticism is, you no, know, but you're being condescending in saying this is a, a film for 14 year old boys. You know what I mean? And I'm, again, this is where I am on board a little bit with this idea that we are, we are in a saturated world where so many of those movies are aimed at that audience. And yet the audience of older people has come to watch from that perspective. You know what I mean? And that's the big, that, you know, laying that argument out, I think is very difficult to do when people love these films so much. You know what I mean? There is infantilizing culture yeah. and that kind of argument, which I do, I'm, I do have some, some sympathy for, you know, even though I may go and like the, uh, a movie, any given movie may be good, good in and of itself. It's more the mechanics around what is being produced as an ideology broadly that I think is the, is, is the problem. Yeah, I think, I think that maybe the conflation of, of action cinema into this too broad an umbrella which encompasses both Liam Neeson on a train and Thor, you know, is, 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 is going gonna, is gonna to result in that, you know. I mean, I would argue that, you know, a film like The Raid or Dread or John Wick is, is as much for our generation as, you know, and I think it speaks specifically to people who have a, an investment in action cinema. And again, as always, as we kind of constantly come back to, the, the problem is largely the conversation around that stuff. You know, I watch a lot of these movies um, and I find a great pleasure. And there was a great Netflix film uh, called Fury, which is a Vietnamese uh, action movie, which is like a really kind of good hand-to-hand kind of set-piece movie. Um, basically, what you'd have seen in the 80s with kind of Cynthia Rothrock um, uh, or Michael Dudikoff, um, <laughs> but transplanted to Vietnam. And, yeah. And it's just really entertaining and it's really fun and it's not patronising and it's not childish, you know, it's just a yeah, good yeah. action movie. Um, but, but but there's no space, again, there's no space to talk about that because you have to talk about the, the politics and the, the box office and the, where does it fit and where do I fit? It's, yeah, 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 yeah. But that takes the joy out of the watching a lot of the time for yeah, me, that, which that I kind of joy yeah. that you're talking about, you yeah. know what I mean? So it's like, I want to have that joy, but it's like, you've got to go through so many layers to get to that, it's it's almost becomes oh look, you go and enjoy yourselves over there. I'm I'll, I'll do something else. You know what I mean? Well, if you ever want, not no, you I know. personally, you know what I mean? But you know, yeah. well, if you ever want to dip your toe back in to the contemporary action yeah. milieu, I'll try that. Um, let me know. I've got a I've got a nice little list. Okay. Thanks, Dario, for uh, your contribution there. That was a, a fun episode. It, no it took a while to get there, but it was definitely as fun as I hoped it would be. Um, talking about this stuff. And no, uh, really good. yeah, thanks to Verena and, and the Polly again. Thanks to our our audience who contributed some really fascinating ideas, particularly the one about how, which I loved, this idea that the, everyone's always moving towards the peril. The peril isn't moving towards. I thought that was a really insightful kind of assessment of the film. Mm. Um, I can't remember who that was, but thank you for for that. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some content from uh, the film festival I'm co-directing film stock which you're going to be at doing some bits and pieces for yeah looking forward to it as well and uh, also just to say we may have a uh, another episode which might involve some uh, live music on it so uh, you know watch, w- this, space, watch yeah. this space I think is the phrase that we, we always use but maybe yeah it's just a, something I'm trying to put together for a screening in London that's come up late which may happen but yeah the film stock stuff I'm really looking forward to because we're talking to our our good friend Mark Jenkin with a 
hopefully a Q&A that isn't just the regular bait Q&A, but um, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll cross some some areas that Mark hasn't been discussing with the, the big success of bait over the last six months or so. Yeah, it would be good to, yeah, because he's got his new shorts playing uh, at, uh, at the festival. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm sure you'll do a grand job with your on-stage uh, Q&A. So that'll be probably the next episode, which will drop sort of late November, maybe into early December, depending on how tired I am hmm. after running the festival. But uh, yeah, thanks uh, thanks everyone for your support as always. Uh, keep emailing us, because like, like Dario just mentioned, this this opportunity to do this event um, has come up through the email. So uh, we do try and get back to everyone who contacts us. It's much appreciated. And catch us on all the normal socials. But uh, until next time, thank you, Dario. Thank you very much, Neil. See you soon. See you soon. And we'll uh, talk to everyone else soon on the Cinematologist Podcast. Bye.